going through college, everyone was either like going to go get a PhD and try to be a professor or go to law school or med school. You know, and that was kind of it. Like that, and none of those things really intrigued me. And I knew that just like social, emotional development and relationships were what I thought was most interesting. So when I got out of college and I was looking at, at teaching jobs, I was mostly looking at kind of pre-primary um, and got a job. And while I was there, then I was like, oh, maybe I should be being like a counselor or a therapist. And literally that never crossed my mind when I was in college. Like not once. I don't know why, but like it made sense. It made perfect sense once I thought about it. That's Alex. He's been working as a substance abuse counselor for women and mothers for about 14 years now. His job is really influential in people's lives, but it also takes a lot out of his life. A regular day, like nonstop. Like I show up and I'm just checking in with the women and with my staff or anyone to see kind of what's been going on. Like most of my time right now gets taken out at the residential location because it's a 24 seven operation. So there's just always stuff happening. And, and then the staff that I supervise there who watch the kids also help the women uh, coordinate other services for them. You know, so they might help them get in contact with their pediatrician, anything kind of kid related. And so I supervise all of that, work with the women also when needed um, around those issues. And then also I'm just kind of part of the leadership team that has to deal with kind of what kind of rules we're going to have in the program, how we're going to try to enforce those rules while also being respectful of the women, how we're going to support the staff around that stuff. And that's what right now a lot of my time gets taken up with. Despite his job being crazy sometimes, Alex feels like parts of him were built specifically for it. I think there's also just a certain kind of temperament or perspective that you're coming in from, you know, um, that can help or hinder that. You know, if you're someone who loves helping people and being needed, then those boundaries are going to be really hard <laughs> because you kind of are wanting that involvement. Um, and that's not the way I come at it. Just, I mean, by luck, not because there's some sort of like, you know, it's just by luck of kind of my temperament in my own life. I've come to this profession through kind of an interest and respect for relationships and for kind of social emotional growth that I find fascinating more so than a love of helping people which might sound kind of cold in some ways, but I think has actually helped me in, in some ways as well. Alex thinks that temperament is crucial to succeeding as a counselor, but even more than that, it's important to remember one more thing. You know, I try to make sure that I'm being really friendly without being their friend, <laughs> because there are some things that you feel really bad about telling a friend. <laughs> you know, you end up worrying that you're gonna lose their friend, yeah. their friendship. And we need to be somewhere where that's not an issue, um, you know, so that no matter how kind of close we get, there's still that, that boundary, which on the one sometimes can make them feel frustrated, you know, um, because they might want that friendship connection. But if we give that to them, um, then when they need that other connection, they're not going to be able to get it from us because they're going to be worrying about losing a friend. He applies both of those to try to overcome the many struggles in counseling these women. They're gonna have lots of reasons. They're gonna say, um, because there's all these other things that are making them not wanna go, mm -hmm. right? And so they're gonna be justifying it and doing whatever they can to kind of keep them safe emotionally. Um, and, to, and they've also, you know, for many of the women, like learning to lie well and believe those lies has been a big part of surviving. Um, you know, many of them have had stints of being homeless um, of having to rely on um, being sex workers 
um, all sorts of things, you know, kind of just living out on the streets where they've had to just kind of say whatever they thought was going to get them safe right now. Not thinking about five minutes from now, let alone a week or a month from now, but right now. Um, so they're going to have a million reasons like anyone else who gets emotional and was trying to defend themselves. And so my job in those moments is to ignore all those reasons. It's not that it's difficult. What I've asked them to do physically is difficult in terms of I've asked them to please go to your group. <laughs> it's 1.30. Please stop going upstairs and watching TV when you're supposed to go to group. Like that's not hard. It's not hard to not walk upstairs. But what's hard for them is controlling their impulses, is um, withstanding that emotional fear that might come up in them as they think about going to group and what they might have to talk about. Um, and what's hard for them is thinking about the future and thinking about the importance of these things long term, even though they might be boring to them right now. You know, that's what's hard. Many of them have blockades and barriers to overcome before being able to address the root of their issues. This is scary stuff. You know, what we're asking them to think about in groups and think about in sessions is, is uncomfortable stuff, but it's necessary and that's why they're there. So we have to kind of balance that line of addressing it and letting them know, we see this, we see that you're avoiding and we want to help you, or we see that you're blowing up emotionally at staff and we want to support you while not turning it into a big battle. A common problem for clients is jumping from problem to problem to avoid focusing on the root of any one issue. And so you have to find a way to gently keep us sometimes on track of saying, wait, we're not going to get anywhere. If all we're doing is trying to jump from one thing to the next, we're not going to help at all, uh, which is the worst possible thing we can do. Then we're falling into a situation where people are coming to counseling because they feel like they should, and then they get to say that they're doing something, but really we're allowing them to sabotage it and not get anywhere. Once Alex is able to make progress with the parent, he tries to really make a difference outside of themselves, especially with their children. My first goal is always to help them find a way to control their own emotional reaction to their kids. Um, because if we can't control our own emotions, then we're not going to be able to control our actions. <laughs> so I can give, I can tell them exactly what to do. Um, or at least exactly what principles to think about. But if we can't control our own frustrations, then we aren't going to be able to put it into place. Um, so that's where I start with all, pretty much all parents is, is working on their own kind of frustrations. And I'm trying to help them kind of form a bond with their kids and practice being with them. You know, they're, they're by and large not used to connecting with people. So many of them have a real hard time just focusing on their child and being okay with that. You know, they'll be in the dining hall and just their kid will be in a chair and I'm even really thinking about, oh, I should pull that chair up next to mine and like interact with them. And you can't just tell someone to do that because again, 99.9% of the time, they're not doing that because emotionally it's difficult on some level. As Alex says, they all love their kids, but that doesn't always translate in the most positive or productive ways. So Alex has to find a way to fix that. They all love their kids. They all love their kids. But how much you love your kid doesn't actually determine what kind of parent you are. Being a good parent is about knowing how to transmit or express that love in a way that your children understand it and experience it. <laughs> so if your relationships and your emotional stuff is so screwed up that you don't know how to do that, it doesn't really matter how much you love your kids because they all love them. 
And so we've got to find a way to help them bridge that gap and, and reconnect with their kids so that they can express it to their children in a way that their children experience. Because that's how our brains develop most healthily is through relationships and through that experience of that love. If Alex can build a healthier relationship, it not only affects the parent, it can have a monumental impact on the child and their future. Resilience first comes from what, what brain, what like child psychiatrists who focus on trauma will say now, that where it first comes from is from being unconditionally loved. You know, there was a while where everyone was like, kids are just resilient. That's not true. <laughs> um, if their brains are, are built in um, a space of love and caring, then there is a, then stresses and and small stresses can increase that resilience, you know. Um, but if they aren't first built in in like a cocoon of that experience, then no, they're not. <laughs> and so that's what we're trying to trying to get yeah. to. And that change is crucial for the child's future because as of now, our system is fundamentally flawed in helping kids traumatized at a young age. The system in terms of DHS and the foster system, right, is not a, a good solution. Sometimes there's, it works that well, but many times it doesn't. So they're trying to, the system is trying to keep them in place with their parents now for more and more often. But many of these moms are, are really struggling to be good mothers. Again, they love their kids, but they're struggling to be good parents. Um, and that is, it's kind of devastating to think about and watch some of these kids knowing that this is really, um, you know, just putting them behind the eight ball and, and putting them way down that at the bottom of that mountain to climb back up. And knowing that right now, if I asked anyone in any political realm, what should we do for these kids? They would say we should do something for these kids. <laughs> they would say that they believe that those kids weren't at fault. That same kid is five, six. Now you've got some people who are starting to say they should get kicked out of preschool, kicked out of kindergarten. That same kid gets into high school and is emotionally explosive in high school. Now you've got an even larger percentage of people who are saying, yeah, suspend them, expel them, get them out of there. They're dangerous. How many times do we have to tell them? It's not that hard. What's wrong with them? <laughs> and then they turn into a young adult and now every, almost everyone's blaming them. <laughs> But they started, that all started, that all started from that infant who wasn't able to be supported physically, emotionally, financially, the way he or she needed to. The root of these issues, including addiction, is clear. If only we're able to actually fight it head on. Diane Ravitch, who's a huge education um, researcher, I heard her interviewed a bunch of years ago, um, on Marty Moskowain's show on NPR, and it was interesting, and, and they were talking about the education system and how, what a disaster a lot of it is. And Marty Moskowain, who I like as an interviewer, said to her, so what do we do at the beginning of the interview? And she said, Diane said, well, I mean, the issue is poverty, right? Like, these kids are coming into school completely traumatized, working from a lower part of their brain, not because the higher part of their brain isn't there, but because when we are impacted by trauma, we get pushed down into working from more and more emotional parts of our brain and more and more reactive parts of our brain instead of the thinking parts of our brain. Um, they're coming in hungry, they're coming in tired, they're coming in um, from trauma-riddled neighborhoods. So how are we, why are we expecting schools to fix that? And Mari's response was, well, poverty, we, that's too big of a topic. So like, what else? 
<laughs> I was in the car and I just started laughing. I was like, what do you, there is no what else. Like what else is a whole bunch of little band-aids. And those band-aids will never fix poverty or the issues like addiction and trauma that come with it. And that's where it all kind of most of these things start. When we can more effectively address poverty, then we can keep people connected. We can keep people in health with healthy relationships because they aren't suffering all this trauma constantly. So Alex will keep fighting the good fight, no matter what. For now, however, he does have some insight that can be applied no matter the situation. And it's something he learned all the way back in his teaching days. I was headed in the right path, I think. I think, um, but I remember my first year I taught, and I taught at an elementary school that was preschool through sixth grade, and I was teaching pre-kindergarten. And we had a pretty tough class. We had some kids that were, um, had issues that were kind of beyond our capabilities of support. And so there were days that were frustrating. But I felt like I was pretty compassionate, pretty patient. And I, but I was just venting one day a little bit to another teacher. I don't remember what, because this was over 20 years ago. But, um, but I'm, I wasn't like someone who was like calling kids names or anything. I think I was pretty, but I was, but I was frustrated. And this teacher looked at me and just said, if it was easy for him, he'd do it. And that was just like a bit of a slap in the face Right, because but I also something I never forgot. Obviously, you know, twenty plus years later, and I feel like it's always that has always been in line with every new thing I've learned along the way, whether it's through professional development or through my own experiences with with people, that that is true. That if it was easy, they would do it. This truly is the cardinal rule, not only for teaching, not only for counseling, but for people. You don't have to have all the specifics of how trauma impacts people. Um, but understanding that everyone is making, in every moment of everybody's life, they are in that moment making the choice that they think is best for them. And they could be horribly wrong. <laughs> but in that moment, they believe they are making the choice that makes the most sense. And they are doing the best they can.